In this episode, Twitter is hashtag for the nerds, Windows Vista is the worst, and Emily engages in moral combat. Welcome to Fax Machine. My name is Noah, and I'm here alongside my co-host Emily. Hi! And Rob. Hi there. We are the hosts of Fax Machine, a podcast by and for people who are curious about everything, but especially the things that make them laugh. In every episode, each of us shares one fascinating fact, along with the incredible stories behind it, and finally, we wrap things up with a pub-style trivia quiz loosely inspired by the theme. This week, our theme is Technobabble, so we'll be covering all things technology, the machines that run our world, and the people who keep them running. Before we get started, our live show is going to be Tuesday, October 22nd at Caveat on the Lower East Side of Manhattan in New York City. Woo! Our last live show was so much fun, you're not going to want to miss this one, which is Halloween-themed. Our October live show will be recorded on Tuesday, October 22nd, but it will be released just before Halloween, so we are throwing a science seance, telling the spooky, strange, and outright hilarious science behind our favorite Halloween facts. We will certainly be in costume, and there will certainly be prizes for audience members in costume, so it's going to be amazing. Tickets are up now, so please check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Fax Machine Pod, and on Facebook at Fax Machine Podcast to get that information. And while you're listening, please swipe over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever you're listening on and give us five stars. You can also leave us a review telling us what you liked about the episode. We would love to hear from you. And with that, Emily, take it away. This week, I learned that if you're a fan of augmented reality, trivia, and collecting Catholic saints like Pokemon, there's an app for you, and it's called (laughs) Follow JC Go. (laughs) What? Yeah. Any guesses as to what JC is short for? Um, uh, That department store? Well, they're all, I think they're all shuttered, so that would be kind of a cruel joke if that were the case. Just just follow it out of this world. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But it is for the one, the only, the Jesus Christ. Um, So Follow JC Go is a smartphone app inspired by Pokemon Go, and like Pokemon Go, uses geolocation services on your phone and superimposes features that you can collect or interact with um, onto your surroundings as you go about your day and throughout the world. And rather than collecting Pokemon for your team i don't know uh you collect saints so like real actual historical um in some cases martyred saints um as well as biblical characters uh and also marian devotions so like think like the our ladies of blank all of them and you assemble them as your e-team which is short for your evangelization team oh my god yeah yeah so this does this sounds like my childhood has been made into the 21st century. So that's nice. <laughs> <You're just laughs> rambling around the nondescript Long Island suburbs, like yeah. looking for different churches. Carrying prayer cards. <laughs> <laughs> just... <laughs> Stuffing them into an old missile. Yeah, that was <laughs> <a> <laughs> missile. Yeah. yeah. What? Not no, like a nuclear uh, uh, missile. Like the booklets. Yeah. Oh, I... not the, <laughs> not the pro- like not an projectiles. <laughs> yes. I'm going to get these to heaven one way or another <laughs> if I have to take everyone out with me. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Well, 
I hate to burst your bubble there, but the Saints don't actually battle each other. No. <laughs> or anything like that. So that it's would not... be, that's the best part. Of Pokemon. Yeah, I know. I, I um, definitely use forgiveness. <laughs> <laughs> it was super effective. <laughs> I'm definitely, I definitely am picturing a sort of like Street Fighter style, like, like, I don't know, like battle at heaven's gates <laughs> it's like saint paul comes down and it's just like fight <laughs> and saint francis francis the one with the dogs yeah and he just uh, like, the animals i feel like he exactly. was actually oh animals. yes yeah, yeah well yeah. i feel like you know saint francis with his special power would be he could like summon a horde of like animals mm. and to just do his bidding yeah that's pretty sick and he would like attack i don't know what it's like all the pokemon in one yeah, yeah. oh yeah that, that's perfect make whirlwind it... and then a bunch of pigeons like <laughs> <flat>. <laughs> Would it would it be moral combat? <laughs> so do the yes. do the priests fight with nunchucks? <laughs> uh, I feel like we should send this episode to the to the developers. There's a lot of gold yeah. here. I feel like um, I feel like also their moves oh would just gosh. be. I feel like yeah. I feel like a priest type Pokemon would not have a lot of like moves that were effective against other priest type Pokemon. Like mm. the like a priest type Pokemon or you know whatever like a saint type Pokemon would just be like mm. exorcism. <laughs> and the priest <laughs> is like I'm fine. Exorcism back at you. It would be ineffective. Sure. But I do feel like the one move that would be devastating and the main thing is you have to use it first would be. Excommunication. <laughs> oh. oh, see, I was just going to do like guilt beams. Yeah. Just, like, guilt. <laughs> <laughs> stunned with crippling guilt. <laughs> good work. Yeah, I feel like they'd also have a lot of like good opportunities for badass one-liners, like say your prayers. Yeah, that, do their thing. That could that could work. Um, but so again, you walk up to the saints characters, what have you tap them, but you don't acquire them, uh, I guess this is in lieu of battling, until you correctly answer a trivia question um, mm. about them. So uh, an example that I encountered a lot in articles that I was reading about this is you'd walk up to Moses, you know, just moseying about, I guess, <laughs> um, and he would ask you a question like, did I say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To which the answer is... Oh, heck No. No, it's Jesus on the cross. I appreciate the heck. Yeah. yeah. Gosh, golly, no. <laughs> but yeah, he didn't say yeah. that. It was Jesus. And Jesus wouldn't have said that. He would have said it in Aramaic as Eloi, Eloi, Lema Sabachthani. So, so there. We just what? put that to rest. Okay. Yeah. Is that really Aramaic? Yeah. That's, that's wow. the, the only words in Aramaic I ever learned. That's pretty impressive. That's I mean, that's a lot cool. more than most people you got to admit. Yeah. Catholic high school, though. Okay. I love it. That... <laughs> pretty cool. That is solid. I feel like sure. you'd, you've earned at least like two Moseses for that. Yeah. Um, um, though I would argue that. Those oh, words... another Moses. I've already got three of those. <laughs> like a magic carp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, relatedly, actually, you can also apparently acquire new saints by trading them with your friends in the game. Oh. So maybe that could be relevant there. Though that also spurred me to wonder whether saints have relative values then, like baseball cards do. But I feel like that would be heretical. So probably not. Um <laughs> But I bet the most valuable saints were holy graphic. <laughs> Amazing. Fantastic. Um, Trading cardinals. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. 
Um, so to highlight some other features of the gameplay that I thought were kind of entertaining. So right now the language options in the game are Spanish, uh, Italian, Portuguese, and English. And uh, full disclosure, I did download the game and played it sporadically oh. as I was going about, you know, my wanderings this mm-hmm. week. Um, and I did, you know, download the English version, and the English version is actually still currently a mixture of English and Spanish, which I guess is then makes it also like an alternative to a language learning app. Maybe you can learn your saints, you can learn your Spanish. It's uh, two birds, one scone, you know, to harken back to our previous <laughs> episode. Um, the game also, Saint while you're Peter. playing... Saint <laughs> Uh, if only he was the one with the animals. Anyways, uh, <laughs> uh, the game also encourages you to do uh, sort of good deeds while you're playing. So, for example, uh, if you happen to pass by a church or a hospital, it'll prompt you to maybe stop and say a little prayer, which I think is pretty nice. Um, it also gives you opportunities to donate to charities. And uh, they're working, I think, based on the, the game itself. It seems like it's still in progress um, on a feature that'll let you log in uh, Obras de la Misericordia or Works of Mercy, um, which mm. I think are, they're kind of phrased in a way that makes me think they're just meant to be sort of general suggestions to kind of guide you towards applicable volunteer activities, like working in a soup kitchen or like, you know, like tutoring someone or nice things like that but the way their phrase is very biblical and i think a little bit too vague so so for example one of them is clothing the naked which is a nice thought but i also remembered that that has happened on this podcast before on occasion when noah spilled a bit of wine and then rob just fortuitously had a hawaiian shirt in his backpack so i mean we could possibly log that as an activity in this app in which Yay. the naked were clothed. So go us. We're already winning. Um, I, have, you... I have eaten 5,000 loaves of bread at once. <laughs> there we go. We fucking love bread. Fed the hungry. It is really good. I fucking loaf it. <laughs> I loaf it so much. <laughs> Um, but some other uh, works that I thought were kind of entertaining include uh, teaching those who don't know, correcting those who are wrong, <laughs> and forgiving those who offend you, which have all further convinced me that I'm doing the Lord's work on Twitter. So I think I can count those two. Right here. I'll try this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> or, I mean, fine, that works too. Um, so can we, can we trade in all these points for an indulgence? Do <laughs> we have to upgrade to like the premium version? I that might be in the next yeah in the next version of the game. I think there's still beta testing. Um, another thing that I thought was kind of interesting and I think like a bit of a missed opportunity is that so to keep your stamina up uh, during the game, um, as in like various games of this kind, where you have to sort of like find sustenance to keep your character alive, um, you pick up not mana, even though I feel like it would be more applicable in this game than in any other game that has employed <laughs> mana as a food source. Um, instead, you pick up loaves. So there you go, Noah. Um, but so yeah, you pick up uh, loaves, uh, water, and spirituality which mm. is just kind of depicted with a cross icon i have no idea how you come across it maybe by pausing uh in front of a church for long enough to trick the app into thinking that you're praying there not totally <laughs> sure or you could actually pray and not be an asshole <laughs> but um 
and lastly, another thing that I thought was kind of cool and like a bit of a historical shout out. Um, if you find yourself too challenged by having to find saints or answer trivia questions, you can also acquire various objects uh, with denarii, which is a form of Roman currency, like an actual historical form of currency. Um, There's like silver coins that you can earn by making charitable donations um, or by watching biblical educational videos that are also scattered within the follow JC Go virtual landscape. Hmm. Um, and I should note too that while the app was not put out by the Vatican, uh, technically it was put out by an organization called the Fundacion Ramon Pane, um, it has received a papal blessing, albeit informally. Um, Pope Francis reportedly has played it and thought it was a pretty, pretty hip thing. <laughs> he had a good time. Um, so if in going about your day, you'd rather lasso St. Peter over Pikachu or Pope Benedict over Bulbasaur. And with that, I'm out of alliterative saints and Pokemon, uh, follow JC go may be the game for you. And it is free for download on iPhone and Android. Well, I just want to pull you up on one thing and that's that Pope Benedict isn't a saint. He's very much alive, (laughs) but there have been a bunch of other ones. So uh, there's oh, got to be a saint in the mix. Probably like an older. <laughs> Didn't say which Pope I, Benedict. Yeah. I I kind of like the idea that in this game, like, like the numbers after Pope Benedict would just be like leveling up. <laughs> oh my God, he's got a Pope Benedict twenty two. <laughs> it's so powerful. Level up. <laughs> So this week I learned that the acclaimed Windows 95 login theme was composed by avant-garde composer Brian Eno, and he made it on a Mac. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Interesting. So this is a kind of fun fact. Um, Brian Eno, he's one of those people who had his hands in every musical bucket. Like he produced with the Beatles. He did a lot of kind of independent music. He's one of like the... He is the name in kind of like spectral and modern music for the last like 30 years. Um, And so naturally they reached, and he's also, by the way, super common crossword answer um, because three letters, two vowels, like just money, (laughs) money right there. But um, so you see Brian Eno a lot um, kind of in trivia circles. Um, So Windows, Microsoft, they had uh, a startup sound, like literally just a sound that the computer would make to acknowledge or to let the user know, yes, I'm starting. And essentially, for about you know five or ten years, that's about as good as it was. Then they upgraded to. <laughs> 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 these are excellent. <laughs> so Windows, then they had this kind of renaissance. They knew Windows 95 was going to be big. Um, they they put a lot of effort into in- improving the operating system, and they said, you know what, what we're going to do is we're going to really make a good six-second musical interlude while people are waiting for us to boot. Uh, And so they approached Brian Eno, and they said, we know you're, like, top-notch composer. You can do all these amazing things. We want you to make something that is chic, um, optimistic, futuristic, sentimental, and emotional. Um, We we loved your work with Chili's. I want my baby back. (laughs) (laughs) Baby back. (laughs) But so they, they had this meeting and they said, we want you to, can you, can you capture all of these sounds? And he said, I, I think so. Yes. He was actually in a weird place in his career where he felt like he was up against a wall. 
and he like wasn't doing his. What best. he needed was a window. A window. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> it was a sign. Oh man! But they said, "Can you do this?" And he said, "Okay, I'll, I agree to do it." And they're like, "Great." Um, also, it shouldn't be longer than three and a quarter seconds. <laughs> And so he was like, this is like, I have to rethink everything. Like everything I do to like create tension and build up, I have to get, throw it out the window <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and like start to make something new. And so he actually uh, attributes kind of a career renaissance um, because he, he totally rethought the way he composed in order to make this. It wound up being six seconds long. He could not contain himself to three and a quarter <laughs> seconds, um, which is so funny. Um but he, he produced this thing digitally, um, and there's so many layers and sounds happening in it. Uh, and so what I want to do is quickly... So I found the the video on YouTube that has every startup sound from Microsoft ever, and it is awful and painful. And don't do it to yourself. Don't, don't sit there for eight minutes and listen to every Microsoft sound ever. <laughs> the link will be in our uh, instant uh, social media account. <laughs> but don't <laughs> but click don't it, whatever do it. you do. <laughs> Um, but so it's, it's familiar, but it might not be the most familiar. Um, but so I'm going to play it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That last little bit was the part that he didn't make. So that was literally what every window sound up to then had been, which is just like a little triumphant trumpet sound. (laughs) But he made this deep introspective, like, where are we going? Like awesome music um <laughs> so something i find really incredible was that he produced it he released it and then another like a student of modern music took it slowed it down 200 times mm. and made an eight minute song out of it because things were changing on like the second like microsecond level and so oh. they went in and they just slowed it down and it is this like really cool like trance song wow um and so that also exists on the internet and it's just because he tried to do all the things he normally did and he just kind of compressed it into the amount of time that he had i would love to trick someone with that and have them be like this is so deep and complex and it's making me you know just like rethink my entire life then you're like yeah that was the windows start of noise And, like in a in a weird way, that's like what Windows wanted. They wanted yeah. their like dumb little sound to mean something and yeah. not just be like. And so it, it reminds me a little bit of like, I don't know. I always I always am very emotional about the theme songs to news shows, and mm. they're like they're relatively quick and like twenty seconds long. And if you dig around the internet, there's a blog post that I wrote in 2014 about <laughs> different. <laughs> different news channel theme songs and the effect that they have on you emotionally. Oh my God. Okay. So, so I won't share that either. Um, but like it's, it, they have like a, a purpose. They're supposed to like instill in you like a set of feelings like in a very short amount of time. Um, and like what Brian Eno did was kind of make that this is new and it's like, it's safe, but it's also scary, but it's also like, we don't know where it's going because there's so much future. Like the the descriptions, and yet, we know exactly where we're going because of the past. <laughs> it's safe. It's scary. It's future. It's past. <laughs> it's everything in it's six nothing. seconds. It's all you and ever nothing wanted in forever. <laughs> but so so he kind of he was the first. It, it was the first time that um, basically they hired someone outside of Microsoft to produce the music. 
And I couldn't find how much they paid Brian Eno. It, it had to be a good contract um, for six seconds of like roughly composed music. Um, and what, what's really cool about it is it set the precedent that, oh, this sound matters. Like this requires a production team to make. And it can't just be like, <laughs> like as it always had been. Uh, and so then I started to look up who are the other people that compose later sounds. Uh, and so I had this conversation with a seven, no, how old is he? With a, with a 10 year old last summer about the best Windows startup sounds and like whatever happened to them. And is he like referring to the old ones like Windows 2000? Windows 2000, Windows XP. XP. And okay. I, we both kind of agreed XP was probably the best one. And I th- uh, let me see if I have that right here. Yeah. The finish is... Oh, that was There's a lot happening there. The finish was the professional version. So oh, I just okay. had regular I was like, XP. Whoa, it's a little edgier than I remember. <laughs> yeah. But like XP has just it's perfect. It's everything you want. And it just it's very soothing. And there's also except in an operating system. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> except then you turn it on and the computer sucks. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what you do is you just turn it on and off. Hold <laughs> like This is my jam. <laughs> <laughs> it is annoying that you can't get that sound any other way. Except now you can, but yeah. <laughs> um, but so we agreed this was like this was a great sound, and so I was like, well, who composed this? Like this three and a half second masterpiece, uh, and the Windows XP sound was actually a col- a collaborative work that took two people who are like relatively famous, um, and so it includes Bill Brown. He's an award winning composer, best known for scoring all nine seasons of CSI New York. Um, he also wrote epic scores for a lot of games. Um, and so, uh, this is something I found out when I briefly patronized, uh, Carnegie Hall as a, as a member was that a lot of shows, when you listen to modern music, they play scores from video games. Mm. And those are our modern opuses. They're like 40 minute long composed orchestral works that get sold to like games. And so when I was reading it, it's like, oh, he composed Wolfenstein, um, Captain America, Super Soldier, and many other video games. Um, and it sounds like, like, oh, whatever, he made video game songs. But that's kind of, that's how you prove yourself as a composer. You can make like an enrapturing, like kind of uh, narrative score for a really long time. Um, so Bill, and he's won multiple awards kind of in that industry. Um, the other person who worked on the XP theme song, which again, three seconds long, um, Tom Ozenich who worked with Microsoft as a consultant, um, he composed the scores to the fo- like many movies. There are about 30 movies on his IMDb. Um, Final, Desti- Final Destination, Too Fast, Too Furious, my favorite of all the Furious franchise, <laughs> uh, and his as well. Um, and he received an Oscar nomination for scoring, most recently, A Star is Born. Mm. Yeah. Oh, and so he, he's like a real, de- and he did Sicario, he did Sully, he did like a lot of like well-acclaimed movies who were like in, like for not the Oscars, but for Golden Globes, like nominated for soundtrack. So he's like a, a real big deal wow. composer. And XP was like right in the middle of it. Like they were like, oh, you're making some movies. Why don't you like make this jingle? <laughs> and it's like, it's crack. It's really good. <laughs> like, he nailed it. It slaps. Yeah. And so... Um, I had a great time going through all of the Windows logos, and they're all, like, kind of across the board. They're better than the sound that Macs make when they start up. Um, Bong. And, yeah. It's just <laughs> like, come on, do something. 
Um, and I find it really interesting because, and I, I dislike Macs and I'm not a Mac user and you can both stare at me as I sit here using this Mac computer <laughs> right now <laughs> to read these things to you. As it glows ironically. Yeah. yeah. But I, I'm much more of a PC person um, <laughs> in this modern world we live in. Um, I was also though shocked to find out how many versions of Microsoft there were compared to like all the Mac operating systems. And so I always liked Mac because they label everything kind of very uh, whimsically, but in an order. So mm-hmm. like basically they named everything after big cats or mountain ranges. Windows mm-hmm. just went nuts. Windows had no idea what they were doing. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like 95, 2000, 7, 8, XP, 10. And you're like, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> Um, but like among them are some of the like more long-standing systems, and so I want to find just one more. This is perhaps the least popular, as as indicated in the YouTube comments, of all the Windows boot up sounds. Oh, that's eerie. So those are two different versions of Windows Vista, <laughs> and nobody oh. liked Vista, and it was just like it was too much. But they went with like vocals and like an ethereal sound. So this week was for me a deep dive into all of the sounds of Windows Startup and then trying to find anyone famous who made any of them. (laughs) And the only other thing I have is a childhood memory of uh, the encyclopedia that came, the Encarta encyclopedia. It used to be like standard issue on all the computers. Yeah, that's right. Oh my gosh. And it had like a 30 second intro song that was... It was. It had tribal influence. It used drums and pan flutes and like ocarinas, and like there's this montage that happened as it loaded on your screen, and it was like it was an, it was emotional. <laughs> it, like there was a lot of feeling packed into it, um, but it turned on like it was just so much. It was it was so much that opening it was annoying, and I wouldn't want to look things up for school because, like, I wasn't in the mood to listen to that song. Wow. (laughs) This week, I learned that the founders of Twitter disapproved of hashtags when they were first proposed, reportedly saying, quote, those things are for nerds. (laughs) (laughs) Hashtag awkward. Hashtag fail. Um... (laughs) So the story of how the hashtag came to be so popular, and not only on Twitter, but like across the internet and even in real life to the point where occasionally people will say it out loud in conversation, like hashtag fail, you know, that sort of thing, um, is, is pretty interesting. It was not, in fact, uh, an idea that was generated inside the company. Um, rather, it was conceived and promoted by Twitter users and by one user in particular whose name was Chris Messina. Uh, and who goes by the unimaginative but effective Twitter handle, at Chris Messina. (laughs) He is widely recognized as the inventor of the Twitter hashtag, which all stemmed from a tweet that he sent out on August 23rd of 2007 that asked, quote, how do you feel about using the, and then here he puts a hashtag, and then in parentheses, pound, for groups, as in hashtag bar camp, and then in brackets, MSG for message. Um, And bar camp is just basically some tech conference, so it was like, Basically saying, well, you know, if we're all going to this tech conference, I don't want to, like, bug all the other people 
who are not interested in hearing about this. So it, maybe there would be a way where we could all subscribe to like a certain channel, which mm. is actually the word he mm-hmm. used um, by using this hashtag. And so this initial idea, which he expanded on uh, in a subsequent blog post, was to create what he referred to as channels, which would group discussion about certain topics so that people who were interested in them could find them more easily. And generally to have what he called, quote, a better eavesdropping experience on Twitter. Um, and I took a minute to read through the comments on the original post of his, uh, which is actually pinned to the top of his Twitter page. And it's really interesting because <laughs> wow. it, it, it sort of acts like a monument or some sort of like public uh, sort of like a museum display of, of just like here was the, the great moment in internet history where, you know, whatever. And mostly it's people like coming by on like significant dates. So it'd be like the 10 year anniversary uh, of its of its invention, basically there were tons mm. of articles about like oh the hashtag is ten years old, and they all like link to his post or whatever, so people would go to it and then comment like oh you've done such a great thing for the world, <laughs> you know it's <laughs> like whoa crazy you should have patented this, and he's just like he'll comment and just be like what <laughs> like that's the stupid, stupidest idea ever, um, but occasionally there's also just like genuine admiration for how this simple suggestion of his bloomed into something that has. But, you know, proliferated into every corner of the internet. But Twitter, as in the company, was not initially impressed, as I mentioned. According to Messina, they told him, quote, those things are for nerds. They're never going to catch on. <laughs> and mm. it's easy to laugh at how, like, short-sighted that was. Um, but it's also possible that that kind of sort of channels grouping, you know, channels or group slash grouping concept that Messina was proposing be used on Twitter was a kind of like niche concept that Twitter execs likely feared would have been like intimidating to the uninitiated, right? Um, but something interesting about how the story of the hashtag falls into a larger pattern present in Twitter's history is its adoption of user-initiated features. For example, in a New York Times article from this spring, tech journalist John Herman points out that there are two interpretations of this behavior. The charitable one, in which, quote, it's a company that has learned a lot from the way people use its product, and the less charitable one, which he calls, its product is broken and perpetually deficient, and its users to whom it already owes a great deal are forced to come up with solutions of their own in order to enjoy the value that Twitter still offers, somehow seemingly despite itself. (laughs) Those users are then left to watch Twitter implement sleek but self-serving versions of those features, allowing a visionless company to succeed further than it already has. (laughs) It's just a vicious takedown of Twitter in this uh, New York Times article. It seems a little harsh to me, but I think we should review some examples that led him to say this. So, of course, as we know, hashtags, but also the notion of the retweet. Um, Mm. So, for a long time, users wanted this function, uh, and they took to just copying the text from a tweet and then putting it into their own tweet with the letters RT in front of it until finally Twitter, yeah, oh my gosh, until like Twitter finally got the message, so to speak. Um, (laughs) Twitter actually didn't have a smartphone app until users had to build their own and prove that people would use them. Uh, and so, like, there are a few of these were created, and some of them actually ended up with pretty interesting innovations, like the notion of, uh, like, on an app, uh, like, pulling down the page to refresh it mm. was just some user, you know, who was a developer who made his own app, basically to try to convince Twitter that they should make their own smartphone app, and they bought his. And that's, like, where that comes from. So, yet again, sort oh, wow. of just drawing from Twitter users doing their own thing. Can you imagine yeah. a world where you couldn't tweet on your phone? Yeah. Where you had to like go log into a terminal somewhere to like <laughs> terminal. <laughs> I think we've progressed beyond terminal. 
It wasn't like they were booting up MS DOS. <laughs> we had we had real computers. But I'm just I'm, I'm picturing myself in college, like running into the nearest dorm room and using like the shared computer, like like quick log into Twitter. <laughs> there was French toast in the cafeteria. <laughs> yeah, I'm. Yeah, so basically. Twitter bought his app, and that's how they acquired that concept as well. Um, another thing that was is crazy to me is that before, you know, like on Twitter, you see like sponsored tweet a lot. Mm-hmm. Before that was sort of a part of their platform, users would sell their tweets directly to advertisers. Like they would go like say, <laughs> you know, I have a fairly influential platform. Would you like to sponsor my tweets? I will tweet about you. Uh, they would do that directly and not through like a Twitter service. And it took, again, this general activity to get Twitter to do this as well. There are some other examples, but the one I find funniest for some reason is that Twitter users came up with the word tweet and Twitter tried really hard to suppress its use in favor for its term for posts on Twitter, Twittering. Oh my God. (laughs) So stupid. Um, (laughs) But prior to the company's adoption of the actual term tweet, the page on Twitter had a button that said, quote, post a Twitter update, which is just so long and boring. <laughs> um, and now it's just like tweet. Um, so it's better. Uh, That's pretty tweet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, actually, the first thing, users started calling them twits. Uh, mm. They were like, I'm going to twit something. Uh, and then pretty quickly thereafter, people started saying tweets. But it was actually a year and a half after that, not that Twitter first adopted them in like actually using them in sort of the terminology on the site, but rather the first uh, the first time Twitter used the term publicly without quotation marks around it uh, was in a company blog post about a year and a half later. So it took actually quite a long time before oh. Twitter started, you know, internally calling them tweets. Um, and then it was sometime, you know, after that that it was actually used on the site. In my mind, perhaps the greatest vindication of the tweet versus Twittering uh, debate, <laughs> if that's what you can call it, uh, is that tweet was actually included in the Oxford English Dictionary in 2013, well ahead of the usual 10 years in circulation before a word is usually considered for addition. With the dictionary's chief editor remarking, quote, it seems to be catching on. <laughs> um, and actually, also, hashtag was added one year later, also ahead of the usual timeline. So, pretty cool. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I will say, I think a kind of delicious point of vindication in this story for me is that now, um, we'll see if that's the case, I guess, when this episode drops, though. If it's truly seasonal, then it should still be around. Uh, But at least right now, there is a trending hashtag that is hot nerd fall. So not only are the nerds inheriting the earth and the Twitter, (laughs) but they're, they're hot while they're doing it. So, hashtag hot nerd fall. I remember we we discussed the, the the symbol itself some time ago on the podcast. I think it was Emily's quiz. It was about, the Octothorpe. Yeah, invented at Bell Labs. Yeah, which is really kind of just from one uh, industrial giant to the next. Yeah, absolutely. Mm, interesting. Was it? Let's move on to the <laughs> quiz. There um, we go. And in this will be important to my quiz because I have written a quiz all about keyboard symbols. Okay. Ooh, Ooh, nice. So my general question to you is what keyboard symbol am I describing? Ooh, okay. okay. Cool. And a lot of them has to do with sort of the history, often much older than you would expect for these symbols in like writing, right? Oh, wow. Nice. So what keyboard symbol is called the snail in Italy, the monkey tail in the Netherlands, 
and has been inducted into the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art due to its, due to its aesthetic beauty. At. The at sign. Yes. Mm-hmm. So this is the at sign, thought possibly to have originated with medieval monks, actually, um, as just sort of a shorthand for at. Um, it's called The Snail by Italians, The Monkey Tail by the Dutch, and as I said, it was in the permanent collection of, the, of MoMA, uh, which cited its modern use as an example of, quote, elegance, economy, intellectual transparency, and a sense of the possible future directions that are embedded in the arts of our time. Wow. Yeah. It seems like an unnecessary abbreviation for a two-letter word. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. It's more fun to write. It really sure. is. It is fun. <laughs> so, question two. What keyboard symbol is thought to trace its origins to the symbolic abbreviation for the Roman term Libra Pondo? Oh, um, that's the pound sign. The pound sign. Yeah. Yes. Oh, It okay. is directly from the notion of the pound, as in the weight or the, or the actual specific, like the, the, the British, like sterling, pound mm-hmm. sterling. Right. Um, and so... Basically, the thought is that the origin of the symbol comes from the abbreviation of Libra Pondo as LP, mm-hmm. uh, and then a line was drawn basically across the L and through the head of the P in order to distinguish the L from a 1, and that was the first intersection. So you, you imagine like mm-hmm. an L and then a, a P next to it, with a line sort of across in sort of near the top of it, maybe two-thirds of the way up, that, that... and that was the you know, across the sort of straight-up line of the P and the straight-up line of the L, yeah. And that is yeah. like the pound sterling sign, like that LP with the uh, line yeah. through it, which is you can kind of like imagine changing pound sterling into a octothorpe. Yeah, just drawing yeah. an extra line at the yeah. bottom. That's yeah, all it takes. and so that's the idea is mm. that it, it started from this like Roman abbreviation, and then through time sort of was a, a yeah, started this Roman term that over time was abbreviated, and then later was just used basically um, to refer to the weight pound or to the currency pound uh, and hence the pound sign and then in a similar way it was just used so often next to numbers that it eventually became known as the number sign wow okay so question three what keyboard symbol is thought to trace its origins to the ps which once represented peso being overlaid and slightly modified or to the initials us for the united states being overlaid and slightly modified so that's got to be the dollar sign right Mm. oh uh so yeah, vertical I guess line it must through be the letter S. Right. Yeah. Kind of frill. That vertical line could make the P. Yeah. Yep, that's absolutely right. So yeah. it's thought that the the symbol for peso was orig- basically originally it was PS and then the P sort of moved on top of the S, so they were like completely overlaid, and then the sort of loop of the P was taken away, so that line was remaining. Mm. But actually, mm. the US. Um, so you can say with a U, you know, there's two upright lines. Yeah. But there's also a version of the dollar sign with two lines through it. Yeah. And it's thought yeah. that that's actually where that came from, was just U on top of an S and then a slightly, you know, narrower U, and you cut off the bottom part of the loop. Oh, that's okay. Cool. That's yeah. very cool. Uh, so question four. The oldest symbol on the keyboard. What is the name of the keyboard symbol that derives its name from the ancient Greek for little star? An asterisk? Yeah. Absolutely. The asterisk has uh, actually been used as a symbol since Ice Age cave paintings wow. uh, in, in sort of like Paleolithic <laughs> Europe. Um, there is also a 2,000-year-old character uh, that looks basically is um, uh, an asterisk uh, used by, and I don't think this is related to the name of the symbol, but his name is Aristarchus, which kind of does <laughs> sound a little bit like asterisk, but it's, mm. it's, uh, it's not of Samothrace, and it's that's the place he's from, and it's called the Asterikos, 
asteriscus, um, which there's a little, I could show you a symbol, but basically it looks very much like an asterisk, hmm. um, which he used when proofreading Homeric poetry in order to mark the lines that were duplicated. So it was a way of like drawing attention to something, especially in editing. Um, it's uh, also uh, known to be used to mark missing lines in like the Hebrew text, the hexapla. Um, and then over time, basically it's, it's shape sort of changed to what we know is the, the modern um, asterisk. It always basically was multiple lines intersecting in the middle. Um, but it's meaning basically as a symbol to correct something like a defect continues to this day. So when people are like typing, they make a typo, say in like a, like on some sort of messenger, mm. they'll often write, the same, you know, the corrected version with a little asterisk next to it under the yeah. bottom. Wow! And we've been doing that since cave paintings. Well, I don't know about cave paintings, but at least uh, for two thousand <laughs> yeah. years, you, we don't actually know what they were correcting in your cave painting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there were two mammoths. I'm sorry, there were three mammoths. <laughs> so, question five: What keyboard symbol was frequently added to the alphabet as the twenty seventh letter in the nineteenth century? possibly because it is thought to have originated as a ligature of two letters that formed a common word in Latin. Ampersand. Ampersand is exactly the right answer. Oh, yeah. It is derived from et in Latin, meaning and, um, and basically in cursive Latin, the E and the T sort of ran together. Um, and you can see, if you look this up on Wikipedia, you can see the progression through time of how it becomes like E-T, right? Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Question six. What series of keyboard symbols implies something similar to the Latin phrase carpe diem and that it calls for living life to its fullest extent even to the point of engaging in risky behavior y-o-l-o that's exactly right thank you really you got it because y-o-l and o y-o and l are also keyboard characters so you got the trick yeah <laughs> yeah um, so of course the phrase yolo i wanted that to not be the answer so badly that i was like maybe if no one says it it can just not be the answer <laughs> Um, but you might like Aww. it a little more after this, actually, because it's okay. pretty interesting. Okay. Um, so the phrase Y-O-L-O, meaning you only live once, uh, has been in use since at least the 18th century uh, when Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, <laughs> I guess, um, <laughs> used an expression translating to, quote, one lives but once in the world, end quote, in the hmm. play Clavigo. Johann Strauss II also titled a waltz, Man lebt nur einmal. You only live once uh, in 1855. Hmm. And in the mid-1980s, Grateful Dead drummer Mickey Hart named his California ranch YOLO, Y-O-L-O, also after the motto, you only live once. Um, so there That's you go. Cool. It's a much longer history than you might expect. Huh. Um, but so for the rest of the questions in this quiz, which is two, um, <laughs> including this one, three, they will be basically uh, about internet acronyms. Oh, where they sure. come from. All right. Gotcha. So in what decade was the abbreviation OMG first used to mean, oh my God? I mean... Uh, the 20th. The what? 20th decade? Decade. De- decade. Oops. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to was... cast that to the ash. I'll tell you, it's the 20th century. Podcast history. It was definitely uh, around no, the No, it was 90s. the... Uh, no, it was way older. It was well, like yeah. the 20s or 30s? Yeah, you're closer with 20s. So it's the one before that. I'll, I'll go ahead and give it to you. Okay. It was the 1910s. It was wow. correspondence like to Winston Churchill. Yes. 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 We've discussed this, I think. Yeah, we've talked um, about this So in fact, it was, it was in a letter written to Winston Churchill. So it was by a retired um, British Navy admiral named John Arbuthnot Fisher. 
Uh, and Lord Fisher, as he was also known, um, sent this letter. He was, you know, quite old. He had retired, um, and he was basically just complaining about Britain's naval, you know, strategy in World War One. Um, uh, and at the time, Winston Churchill, I think, was first Sea Lord, which is just a fancy British term for like Secretary <laughs> of the Navy or something. Um, and he also basically in this letter, he he writes that I hear that a new order of knighthood is on the tappy, and that means like is available. To be given to people. (laughs) Um, And then he writes, OMG. And then, oh my God, in parenthesis next to it. (laughs) Shower it on the Admiralty. So he made use the abbreviation. And then immediately it was just like, oh, by the way, OMG means, oh my God. (laughs) Which kind of makes you wonder like how any of these things get started. Like if the idea is like, let me use this so it'll be shorter. But then the first time you do it, you have to explain it. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Ends up being longer, some told. Yeah. And for, so this was a letter in 1917. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. And it actually, another interesting thing is this was not known for quite a long time. I think it was 2011. This this letter was discovered in like papers somewhere that had been like sent to Winston Churchill. So wow. it's a you know relatively recent discovery that the earliest known known usage of OMG to mean oh my god. Uh, it was 1917 in a letter to Winston Churchill. Oh my God. Okay, so I imagine that he had a shipmate who was like, "OMG!" Like, <laughs> did you see what John was doing in the cafeteria? And this guy was like, "OMG! I, I have to spread this far and wide." Exactly. <laughs> so that's nice. It just makes sense in a naval thing, and they're like, "HMS OMG." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, question eight. What is the name of the electronic dance music duo consisting of Uncle Red Foo and Nephew Sky Blue, who are son and grandson of Motown Records founder Barry Gordy Jr., respectively? Barry Gordy's offspring made a... What kind of music? An electronic dance music duo. Barry Gordy. Wow. Okay, so like MGMT jumped to mind, but like I don't think they're related to the Gordy family. So remember that these are all like... They're internet terms, internet too. Acronyms. Yeah. Oh, is this LMFAO? This is LMFAO. Oh, dear God. <laughs> <Yes>. Very nice. <laughs> um, I, find, I find the notion that those two people in that group are like the uncle and nephew to each other incredibly strange. Like... I, when I found that out, like yeah, that was weird. that was oh, the man. most strange thing about an incredibly <laughs> strange pair of people, um, and I yeah I have never really recovered from that, um, <laughs> but yeah of course the band is LMFAO, laughing my effing ass off right mm-hmm. I guess if I'm gonna say effing I could probably say ass I guess we've modulated <laughs> we've what we've uh, <laughs> we say we've, we've calibrated our level of profanity to. Usually, I'll say effing, but I will say ass. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever, wherever that puts us. Um, Consistently. Yeah. Um, but with that, that's our show. We will BRB in two weeks for our next episode. But while you're waiting, don't forget about our Halloween-themed live show at Caveat on Tuesday, October 22nd. It's going to be so much fun, and we cannot wait to see you there. Thank you so much for listening. Fax Machine is hosted and written by Noah Guyberson, Emily Costa, and Rob Frawley, and was edited by Noah Guyberson. Theme music is by AC Antonelli, and our logo was designed by Mike Zola. Bye. Bye. Bye.